Hello, and welcome to today's event, As California Ended Mass Incarceration. I'm Richard Kravitz, Director of the UC Center Sacramento. UCCS is a system-wide program of the University of California dedicated to teaching, research, and public service, and located one block from the State Capitol Building. Operated by UC Davis and enrolling students from every UC campus, our center educates California's future leaders in the craft of politics and policymaking. We also make the expertise of UC faculty available to decision makers within state government and beyond. We are pleased to partner with Zocalo Public Square in bringing a wide audience to the topics we feel are important to Californians. Now, I'd like to introduce Moira Schirig from Zocalo. Thank you, Richard. Welcome everyone to Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. We are proud to also partner with the California Wellness Foundation for this event. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. California and Texas have the largest prison populations in the country. And today we will be discussing whether California, at least, has broken the cycle of mass incarceration. Moderating today's event is Abby Van Sickle, who covers criminal justice in California for the Marshall Project. She previously worked at UC Berkeley's investigative reporting. Discuss what California has done to reduce incarceration rates, what's actually improved the system, and areas where there's still progress to be made. Dr. Raphael is a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley and director of the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. He studies the economics of low-wage labor markets, housing, and the economics of crime and corrections. His most recent research focuses on the social consequences of the large increase in U.S. incarceration rates and racial disparities in criminal justice outcomes. He's a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, the California Policy Lab, the University of Michigan National Poverty Center, the University of Chicago Crime Lab, IZA Bonn, Germany, and the Public Policy Institute of California. He also co-authored a recent report with PPIC on Proposition 47's effects on racial disparities in incarceration. So Steve, thank you so much uh, for coming today. And I just wanted to get started by asking um, you know, a bit of background about um, California's history of criminal justice. Uh, can we start with what the state policies looked like in you know, a couple of decades ago in the 80s, 90s, and the early 2000s? And what happened to the prison population back then? Sure. Uh, well, I think it might be useful to perhaps just offer a, a little bit of general uh, information on the structure of the different correctional populations that exist in most states. So in, in pretty much every state in the country, we have a, you know, state prison systems that house people who have been convicted of, of felonies that usually have a sentence of a year or more. And then on top of that, we also have in all the counties jail systems that are usually about half uh, the prison population in size, not, not by statute or anything, but just that seems to be the way it is. And about two thirds of that population are actually um, incarcerated pre-trial. They haven't been convicted uh, of anything yet, while the remainder has been convicted of a, of a relatively minor crime and is serving a short sentence. And then we also have a series of community corrections populations, people who are under uh, the um, 
sort of custody of state parole officers, and then also people in local probation. So when we think about correction history and a lot of the things we're going to talk about, a lot of those populations interact with one another. Um, in California, you know, circa around 1980, like rest, most of the rest of the country, our sentencing system uh, basically relied on what is called indeterminate sentences, which basically means that somebody who's convicted of a crime uh, is, is sort of sentenced to a minimum sentence and a maximum sentence. And when they're doing their time in prison, a parole board, uh, by monitoring rehabilitative activity, conduct, so on and so forth, decides when it's time for uh, someone to be released. And what happened across the country, and in California as well, is the state moved largely to determinate sentencing, where California's version of that is uh, fixed sentences attached to offenses. And in the California case, there's, there's a triad of sentences, so a, a minimum uh, sort of medium sentence, a high sentence that can be picked by the judge. Uh, and people do their time and they're released when their sentence expires minus any, any uh, good time credits they've uh, received. Now, of course, that by itself doesn't necessarily cause an increase in, uh, in incarceration because the sentences can be set at any level. But what we saw in the United States was that determinate sentencing structure basically served as scaffolding on which uh, state legislators across the country sort of grafted mandatory minimum sentences for certain offenses, uh, sentence enhancements for certain characteristics of offenses, things like truth and sentencing legislation that require that for, for certain offenses, uh, a minimum percent of the, of the sentence has to, be, um, has to be served. And just added all the structure that tended to ratchet up how much time people uh, were serving in prison and jails. So in California, um, you know, California versions of that would include sentence for being affiliated with a gang, five-year um, uh, sentence enhancements associated with having prior convictions for specific offenses, sentence enhancements associated with prior prison term, prior drug conviction, and then, of course, the, the most uh, well-known sort of sentence enhancement or the three strikes law that passed in the early 1990s. But basically what we saw in California was in, in the 1970s, uh, and, and up to about 1980, the number of people incarcerated in a state prison was about 24,000. And by 2006, that grew to 175,000. And if we express that, you know, as, you know, per capita is what we have to do because California's population didn't grow over that time period, that in 1970, we had an incarceration rate of about 100 per 100,000. And then in 2006, we had a, an incarceration rate of 488 per 100,000. And then alongside that, jail populations grew, the proportion of people on probation uh, in the counties grew, the, the proportion of people that were under the um, authority of state parole officers uh, um, grew actually quite drastically. And uh, this is the general footprint of our criminal justice system, both in California and everywhere else, just expanded. And just to build off of what you were saying about the change in sentencing, so was were, was this sort of massive growth just an unintended consequence of changing it so that you know instead of these um, sentences that could change time depending on behavior, that people had this fixed amount and all this stuff got tacked on top of it? Uh, that that's a very interesting question. So I think many who would advocate for a move towards determinate sentencing in the 1970s we're concerned with many of the things that we're concerned about today. Uh, in particular, um, 
in particular, uh, um, uh, sorry, just got a message. Okay, in particular, um, concerned about inequity, about differences across judges uh, in terms of who's being sentenced to what, uh, mm -hmm. and concerns about fairness when people were released, concerns about racial equity and differences that might be arising in the uh, process of determining who will be released and so on and so forth. And so the, the move to determine a sentencing per se was meant to create more uniformity and more fairness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then in the, but in the process, we sort of sacrificed individualization of sentencing and then individualization associated with people's, uh, um, with people's rehabilitative activities. Uh, but that being said, what we also saw in the 80s and 90s was uh, a sort of shift towards tough on, on crime policies, which were quite intentional, right? And they were motivated to some degree by uh, a theory of deterrence that uh, a more severe sentence would deter crime in the first place. And then also theories of incapacitation that if someone is committing a serious crime, removing them for society for many years would, would, would reduce crime. So the policy choices were clear, those policy choices anyway, were clearly intended to make sentencing stiffer. Mm -hmm. And what we know about correctional populations is they grow when you admit more people and they grow when they're there for more time. And that's exactly what we saw in California and across the rest of the country. So that's really interesting. You're talking about you know, the people who would have been in favor of the determinant sentences of the specific amounts of time may have been responding to a lot of the things that you know, critics of the criminal justice system today are also concerned with. But you also had a movement at the same, you know, slightly later um, for tough on crime policies. And those two things um, helped factor into this boom in the number of people who were behind bars. Um, I wanted to talk then about the consequence in California for having that many people who are incarcerated in the state's prison system and that the overcrowding that that led um, that stemmed from that. So in 2011, the Supreme Court um, uh, took on a case uh, on that particular issue. And I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about what happened um, and what are some of the, um, the policy changes that, um, that were a result of that. Yeah, sure. So um, California, it's interesting, California's prison system, just in preparing for this, I was trying to review some longer term history and the state has been struggling with overcrowding prisons since 1850, when it first bit, built San Quentin. Um, and there were, there were too many people crowded in a, in a very small number of cells in the states only and, and first prison. And that theme has repeated through, repeated through the latter half of the 19th century and through the 20th century, where uh, the population was always to some degree greater than, than, than capacity. And what we saw was that that huge increase between 80 and 2000 quite naturally led to uh, overcrowding of facilities. And if we think about the way a system can respond to such a, a big increase, either one could build more facilities to accommodate the, the more people, or um, one would just house more people in facilities that are, are not designed to house a population of that size. And California did both, right? So. Um, by uh, 2006, when we were at our peak, the rated capacity of the state's 33 prisons, or I think there's 35 prisons actually, was on the order of 85,000 people, and there are 178,000 people. So there was nearly twice the number of people as the design rated capacity. 
So in 2011, um, there, there was a Supreme Court decision. This was the result of two uh, lawsuits brought on behalf of inmates. Uh, um, one was alleging that um, the system was failing to provide adequate health care to inmates, and the other was alleging that, that the system was failing to provide adequate mental health care to the inmates. They were both joined uh, and, and brought under the um, uh, sort of uh, stewardship of a three-judge federal panel that ruled that overcrowding in the system was a, a cause for this and that the inadequate um, metal, medical and mental health care was in violation of the Eighth Amendment. The, the Supreme Court agreed and uh, the, the three judge panel basically um, mandated that the state reduce its prison system to 137.5% of uh, rated capacity, which is about 115,000 uh, in terms of population. So that's where the state was, right? Now, of course, this legend, the, these two uh, lawsuits were, were sort of brewing for many years. So the, before 2011 occurred, there were some uh, attempts to try to relieve overcrowding um, via some policy uh, uh, choices. One in particular, something called non-revocable parole, which passed a couple years earlier, that basically defined a, a, a group of, of incarcerated persons who were released and were deemed low risk to be subjected to a different standard and could not be returned to custody. But it, it didn't reduce the population anywhere near what, what the court was asking for. So in uh, 2011, the state legislature passed Assembly Bill 109, sometimes referred to as, uh, as corrections realignment. And basically what corrections realignment did is it, it started by a defining uh, a group of individuals that they call triple non-cases. And those are basically cases where people are, are convicted of non-serious, non-violent, non-sexual offenses and have no history of those offenses. And for those, those people, there were two major changes. First of all, upon release from prison, if they were in prison, rather than being uh, uh, monitored by, by state parole, they were now going to be under the community uh, correction supervision of, of county probation uh, officers under a program called post-release community supervision. And uh, these individuals, if they violated technically the terms of their release, could not be sent back to prison. Mm -hmm. That it turned out that that was a very large source of admissions into the California prison system, and then another thing that it did was uh, it mandated that that for many of these triple non-offenses, that the individual be sentenced to a local uh, set of sanctions, right? So either some time in county jail, uh, a probation sentence, or a split sentence between between the two. And, uh, and basically diverted an entire flow of, of admissions into prison, uh, some degree in county jails, some to probation, um, and some to just alternative sanctions and diversion programs that are experimented with by many of the counties. And then of course, there was also some realignment of funds to the counties to, to sort of compensate for these um, uh, new responsibilities. What we saw almost immediately so that the, the law went into effect in October 2011, we saw um, prison admissions to the state decline, our weekly prison admissions declined from around 2,000 per week down to about 500 per week, and it stayed there and never went back up again. And then over the, the next subsequent six, seven months, we saw about a 30,000 person decline uh, in the prison population. Some of that went back to, some of that was transferred into jails, but, but most of it wasn't. 
Um, and it was the, the first step of, or the first major reform that, that we've seen in the state that was then followed by, uh, followed by several others. So just to, to maybe walk through a few more, there were also reforms that occurred via, via, the, the, um, via ballot initiatives. So in 2012, voters approved Prop 36. It, uh, it restricted um, uh, the offenses to which a second strike and a third strike could be applied. In 2014, California voters passed Proposition 47, which redefined a series of uh, offenses that can be charged either as a felony or a misdemeanor, what are commonly referred to as wobblers, as straight misdemeanors that led to large drops in felony arrests and also some reduction admissions to prison. And then in 2016, Prop Proposition 57, um, to some degree, added a little bit more indeterminacy into the sentencing structure. And, and what Prop 57 did is, first of all, it, it opened up a few different avenues for uh, incarcerated persons to earn time off their sentence. And it also made people eligible for parole when they serve uh, the amount of time equal to their base sentence minus any, any enhancements. Um, there are also more legislation that, that occurred uh, in 2017, 2019, eliminating uh, some, some specific sentence enhancements. And, and that's led to you know, declines in, in uh, the prison population in recent years. So that's, I, I think that's a lot to sort of unpack there with all of these, the court case prompting, um, you know, forcing the state um, to reduce the population and then voters you know, ch um, changing the course of, of uh, the consequences of different offenses over time. Um, I did wanna stop uh, and go back to that first piece you were talking about where the the non 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 group of people um, would not be going back to prison, but instead some of them, um, you know, were held at the local jail sometimes for long, uh, long periods of time. And I've interviewed some of the people serving these sentences, and they are, you know, housed in facilities that uh, were not meant to keep people for long amounts of time. And I just wanted to see if um, can you talk a little bit about any of the kind of unintended consequences in that particular piece and what counties or the state has done to try to fix that? Well, that certainly, I believe, was an unintended consequence. So there are, uh, uh, it, I think perhaps the, the first order non-intended consequence was the, the spike in jail populations that occurred after, um, after realignment went into effect. So prison population over six months dropped by about 30,000. And then what we saw was an increase in state and local jails of about 10,000 people. So it was offset roughly by, by a third. And the count, many of the counties, I think at the time I was um, doing research on that with my colleague, uh, Magnus Loftrum at PPIC, and we had counted the number of counties that had their own court population orders on their system. And it was, I think, over half of the counties in California. So they had to, you know, sort of also respond to this, this pressure by, you know, using more uh, sort of capacity releases and being more selective in terms of who's incarcerated at the local level. So that, that was one thing. Um, but I, I think another issue is that there are some people who are, are being convicted of felonies and receiving multi-year sentences. And by the, the sort of design of AB 109, they're being housed in local jails. Mm -hmm. And local jails, for the most part, are not really designed for a long-term stays. It's, it's hard to program. The population turns over every single day. Uh, and it's, it's probably not appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was in the, the, um, 
the committee for the Farm of the Penal Code is recent, recently formed uh, committee in full disclosure. We've been doing some work with them in, in the recent past. In their first annual report, one of the recommendations they made was that anybody serving over a year should be doing it in a state prison rather than a county jail to try to address that, that particular problem. I also wanted to talk about a consequence of um, one of the propositions, Prop 47, that you've done some work um, trying to understand its effect on racial disparities in the system. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing um, everybody who's listening to this right now knows that there are you know, deeply entrenched racial disparities. Um, how, what's the effect uh, when you were researching Prop 47, um, maybe remind, uh, you know, remind everybody what that is, but also what did you find when you started looking at the effect of that? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, so again, what, what Prop 47 does, or what it did, was it, it redefined a set of uh, uh, offenses that could be charged either as a misdemeanor or a felony to misdemeanors, and then actually also had some provisions for, for retroactive resentencing for people who had been convicted of these offenses in the past. You know, so the, these are mostly offenses that are are sort of relatively less serious drug offenses that can be charged as felonies, and then uh, theft without prior offenses, um, where the the threshold limit between uh, felony and misdemeanor increased from one dollar amount. It was I think around three hundred bucks to upwards of about a thousand dollars. What what we saw um, pretty much immediately was a a, a pretty large impact on um, arrest rates, felony arrest rates for drugs, um, felony arrest rates for property crimes, and then at least for drug offenses, an offsetting increase in misdemeanor arrests, but for property offenses, we didn't see an offsetting increase uh, for mis misdemeanor arrests. When, when you look at the effect uh, that, the, that the reform had on, on racial disparities, um, the, the, the study with PPIC that, that Magnus Lofstrom and Brennan Martin and I are conducted, uh, we found that um, there were an enormous narrowing of race disparities in felony, uh, felony drug arrest rates that, uh, that occurred almost instantly. And in fact, one of the things that we had done is we had calculated kind of the relationship between uh, the, the arrests per 100,000 of the population and age for, for different, different racial groups and ethnic groups and, and gender. And you see this stunning shift in uh, the felony drug arrest rate for African-American men to the point where it's actually sort of below what it was for white men before uh, Prop 47 went into effect. And then you also see comparable declines for uh, for white men and for Latino men, and as well as for other groups. But overall, there was a big narrowing in that outcome. Uh, the other things that we saw, so in, a, in an, I was had the opportunity to work with um, uh, the San Francisco District Attorney at the time, who's now the LA District Attorney, George Gascon, uh, in analyzing race disparities in cases processed through uh, the city and county of San Francisco. And uh, John McDonald and I from University of Pennsylvania, we, we studied essentially case outcomes before and after Prop 47 went into effect. And one of the, the kind of most salient patterns that came out was in the, in the pre-47 period, there was a pretty large race disparity in uh, the likelihood of being detained pre-trial. And then more modest disparities in things like the likelihood of being convicted and, and sentence length. And when we went from the pre to the post period, the shift in how offenses were defined 
um, almost eliminated the pretrial detention difference uh, for that county anyway. And then uh, consequently differences in conviction, um, differences in, in sentence also narrowed, which for the most part seemed to be attributed to the fact that being arrested for a misdemeanor, um, uh, the one's difference in criminal history bore less on the outcome than when somebody is, is arrested for a felony. Okay, yeah. I was just going to ask why, you know, it's, why did you get, I, I'm not sure in your research how much you got into the causation or how much you can tell what the causation is, but I was wondering if there's, you know, is there a takeaway for um, other jurisdictions that would be thinking of similar changes or aren't, you know, really focused on trying to decrease racial disparities? What, you know, what did you learn that you thought was, a, uh, you know, important to, to understand? Uh, sure. So, well, e even if we were to back up to realignment and just, just think of this whole suite of reforms that have happened in California, um, you know, most of these reforms were not enacted uh, with, with um, racial disparities in mind. They were, they were enacted in an attempt to be more fair, to moderate, to not have um, such stiff sanctions, and then, you know, frankly, under the pressure of the federal court. Uh, but what we saw when, when we look at, at sort of race disparities in incarceration, race disparities in arrest, race disparities in pretrial detention, so on and so forth, is all of those disparities narrowed, right? And, and it's just indicative of the fact that, that the criminal justice system generally has a disproportionate impact on, on the African-American population and to, and to a much lesser degree, the Latino population in the state, but there's still slightly higher rates. And so, uh, you know, the the series of papers that, that I've worked on this topic just seems to suggest that, that moderating those, those, uh, those sentencing practices, which have occurred in other states as well, right? In, in Texas and New York and in many places, tends to, tends to narrow, it certainly doesn't eliminate, but tends to narrow race disparities in many of the outcomes that we see. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to turn now to, to what happened to people who were released. Um, the people who were released from the state prison and, you know, did people end up going back into the system? Did they re-enter successfully? Um, how do you even go about measuring that? Um, can you give us any kind of sense of, of what you, um, of what you've seen in that area? Yeah, sure. So, so um, there's indirect questions about, you know, what happened to crime in, in, in California. There's now quite a bit of, of research trying to test whether or not the reduction in the prison population, reduction in jail population, all things that have happened have led to increases in crime in California relative to elsewhere. And that pretty much shows that we have not had an increase in, uh, in any of the measurable violent crimes that the FBI tracks as, uh, you know, as, as our principal measures of, of crimes against person. And for, for property crime, there's some evidence of a small effect on auto theft and there's uh, that was associated with realignment. And there's mixed evidence regarding larceny theft where there's some studies that find effects and some studies that don't. But overall, we don't see a big Im impact on, on reported crimes despite the fact that we have much fewer people incarcerated. So I think that that says something about the contribution there. When it, when it comes to, 
to recidivism outcomes. So a lot of criminal justice research tends to focus on, you know, are people coming back? Are they being re reconvicted? And it is a narrow focus, but it's one that that receives the most attention where we document things the best. It's, it's still the case that, that people released from state prison um, are reconvicted at a relatively high rate if we look over the three years subsequent. A lot of that reconviction are for misdemeanor offenses. Um, and then even among the felony offenses, a lot are for substance abuse issues, although some people are reconvicted for serious offenses as well. That hasn't changed that much. It seems to have declined a little bit uh, uh, relative to the pre-realignment period. Um, but it's, uh, um, it's definitely, uh, a, a, you know, a, a sort of stable outcome that we see in California and elsewhere. There is a lot of research also on, on the challenges that people face in reentry. So uh, we know that the, the first few weeks upon release are quite critical and the risks of homelessness, the, the mortality risk is high, oftentimes through, through overdose. Um, the the housing problems, the job problems, they're real, and they're you know it's it's a big deal for someone to leave prison and reestablish themselves when they they basically have nothing, especially if somebody has served a lot of time, and quite naturally, uh, policymakers have sort of focused on that period of transition as as one that needs um, greater attention to ensure you know everybody has ID to try to transition people into stable housing to you know. Um, ensure continuum of care for, for medical treatment or for mental health care or whatever the person's needs are. And that's an area of that, that a lot of work and a lot of research is, is ongoing. Mm -hmm. I did want to talk, you know, when we were thinking about people coming out of prison, that the people who I've interviewed in that stage, you know, even getting an ID, finding employment, reestablishing ties of family, all of that can be so difficult. Um, and, you know, during COVID, um, that just seems like it would add such immense um, layers of difficulty. Um, I wanted to ask about California and where the state falls when, when it comes to releasing people um, or preventing them from going into the state prison system during the pandemic. How has California addressed that and, and you know, what's um, sort of where do we fall in trying to um, trying to reduce the population during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. So, um, well, that, that's a very interesting question. So the, the prison population uh, in California has actually declined uh, quite a bit during, during the pandemic. And it's, it's largely through um, temporary population measures. So uh, on, you know, in March, 2020, on the eve of our first kind of shelter in place order, uh, I think there were 124,000, 123,000 people in, in our state prisons. And as of the last Wednesday count, because there's a, there's a weekly population report that CDCR posts every week where they measure the population Wednesday midnight, there's about 94,000 people. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a pretty sizable decline. Um, most of that decline uh, has, has come through uh, a, a few different measures that have been taken. Um, first, there was accelerated release for people who were who were vulnerable, and I, I think that um, that has mostly been people who had relatively short amounts of time to to serve on their prison term. So, to some degree, it's borrowing releases that would have occurred over the next few months, mm -hmm. and then also uh, um, CDCR greatly reduced. Uh, um, admissions of people from county jail systems, <clears throat> with the aim of 
trying to minimize the amount of movement that was happening uh, between institutions because there was a, an outbreak early uh, in the pandemic at San Quentin that um, to, to, you know, has been traced to the movement of, uh, of high risk incarcerated persons from an from a institute, Chino to, uh, to San Quentin and to another, another prison in the system. Right, the transfers I think got quite a lot of attention, um, you know, when sort of potentially seeding outbreaks in places that, um, that didn't have them before. Um, do you have a sense for people who, um, you know, are watching this closely, are there things that may stick from COVID in terms of um, fewer people incarcerated in general, um, or is it mainly sort of temporary things like there aren't as many trials happening or people are being held at the jails instead of prisons. Is there, you know, sort of what do you see, if anything, as um, kind of lessons learned during this time um, that we we may have with us going forward? Mm -hmm. Well, so in my in my mind, when I think about, you know, institutional populations, I, I have a model in my head. Right, I'm an economist, so I always use models. And the model is that you have people who are admitted into a system, right? And there's, there's kind of a flow rate in. And then there's a rate at which people are leaving, okay? Where the, the longer that someone is going to be in the prison, the lower like, or the lower proportion that are sort of seeping out of the prison at any given time. And so it's a, you'd almost think of like the level of water in a bathtub, you turn the water on and people leak out, right? And so, um, you know, and then our, our prison system to some degree hits some kind of equilibrium when the rate flowing in and the rate flowing out is the same. Mm -hmm. And if I think about what's happening with COVID, we haven't really changed anything in terms of our sentencing structure by imposing temporary measures, right? So if, if we accelerate releases, those are releases that would have occurred in the future and it, it, lowers, the, it lowers the population. But eventually when society opens up, if crime rates are roughly where they were before COVID, they don't leave, they become a large proportion and they add quite a bit to the population. And you could imagine in a world where you have declining arrest rates among the young, and then you were to release an aging population that that could have a permanent effect or, you know, on, on, uh, on the prison population. When you just mentioned declining, uh, declining crime among the young. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's something that um, you had mentioned some research about that I found really interesting. Yeah, the, so the, there's a, there's kind of this remarkable pattern that is being observed all across the country that uh, young people are, are being arrested. And I, I mean, you know, 18 to 25, the period of time when people are most likely to, to, um, to experience an arrest. They're being arrested at a much, much lower rate than uh, 
than young people were in the 1980s and the 1990s and even in 2000 right so it's this this sort of wholesale decline in in this particular act in this well in that particular outcome and if arrests are lower that that you know, also translates into fewer prosecutions and fewer flows onto probation, fewer flows in the, in the jail, fewer flows in the prison. And so, you know, to the extent that we think of, you know, a birth cohort, so someone born in 2000 versus someone born in 1980 as having this kind of shifting differential pro propensity to engage in crime, the long-term projection is if that were to continue into the future, that that alone would moderate uh, prison populations in the United States. So there's a researcher at Rand named Sean Bushway, who has been trying to model that for some states uh, and, and believes not only based on the arrest, but on other measures of externalizing behavior among young people, whether it is drinking and driving or you know, um, uh, getting pregnant very young or what have you, that, that young people are just for whatever reason, not getting into as much trouble today as they were in the past. I just find that very interesting. So it's like the cohort of, of people um, from a whole generation are actually being arrested less. And did, has he gone to any kind of causation or is this just something that happens sort of generation by generation? Um, and, and what kind of impact can that just have in and of itself on you know, reducing mass incarceration? Well, so, so there's a lot of speculation about what's behind. I, I mean, I, I think the the interesting question there is that, you know, if, if we just frame the 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 kind of simple sort of uh, uh, path of inquiry as, you know, why do people born in this year seem to offend a lot less than people born in that in that year? Uh, the answers that are out there range from people born, you know, my age. Okay, we're exposed to a lot more lead in paint in the walls and in gasoline and in dirt that we ate when we were kids and so on and so forth. And that may have impacted us in a way that we were more impulsive when we were young or had less executive functioning um, uh, to, uh, you know, people spending more time interacting with one another virtually rather than socially. Uh, there are some papers that argue that video games are reducing crimes. Um, and you know, also we've seen, generally speaking, that people's average education has increased over this time period. And, and generally speaking, more years of schooling uh, translate causally, actually, the, the research that I know into, into less offending. So it's a little bit of an open question and we don't really know what the answer is. But if, if to the extent that either trends continue or the arrest rates remain low for young people, that does bode well for us in the future, right? Because if, if we think of, you know, a, a correctional population, oftentimes you, you see that, you know, it's largely male um, and you oftentimes see an average age that can be, you know, 34, 35, 36 years old, depending on the state and year. And you're, you're watching people who are, you know, in a current situation as a consequence of something that happened many years before. And, you know, each cohort is going to enter and it sort of goes through through that system. And if there's just less, less, uh, less arrests and less offending for whatever region, then that that should likely lower prison populations. Oh, that's, I thought that was really um, just really interesting that, a, you know, a, a group, an age group um, could just by itself have such a huge um, effect on lowering the number of people in the system. 
Um, I wanted to just turn now toward the future. Um, and, you know, I know you don't, uh, you don't have a crystal ball to sort of see where the state is going. Um, but I wanted to see if there were specific policies that you think, um, you know, have really worked to keep the number of people in prison low um, while balancing public safety and sort of where you see the state going um, in the future. Um, what do you think that you know, people, policymakers, or community members who are just really interested in criminal justice, um, what what would you tell them about things that have worked um, and things that haven't? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I think that that many would argue that um, greater ability to individualize, if done fairly and done with transparency, um, on the back end of sentences. Uh, can be a positive thing, right? So if if somebody has a you know a, a good disciplinary record, has been taking classes, has been doing their jobs, you know a lot of people in prison are, are have jobs and they're they're actually working to help maintain the organization. Um, that you know there are people who are good candidates for for early release, and to some degree, uh, providing incentives to become that good candidate is not only a, a way to you know, to reward good behavior, but it allows people to, to identify who they are, right? That, that you know, they're, they're, they're ready to, to re-enter earlier than they otherwise would. And so, again, as we mentioned, Prop 57 was one way to do that. Um, but, but we could imagine that, that there are other ways maybe to, to sort of move maybe a little bit more in the direction of indeterminate sentencing rather than determinacy. And, you know, that, that is a, that can be difficult and, Obviously, there were problems with it that led to a move away from indeterminate sending in the 1970s. So it, it has to be done carefully, and we'd have to learn from the past. Um, I think another big issue that that you know the state has wrestled with, and others have wrestled with, concerns who is detained pre-trial. Uh, so so there's a, a kind of a, a flourishing of research on pre-trial detention at the moment. That, that shows that being detained pretrial is more likely to lead to plea deals where somebody pleads guilty. Um, being detained pretrial um, increases likelihood people lose their job. Being detained pretrial sometimes is predictive of future uh, arrests because people become uh, involved, people lose their jobs, so on and so forth. And so, uh, you know, and then th there's also a lot of, um, uh, attention being paid on the fairness of, of cash bail and, and whether or not we should be uh, sort of triaging people based on their ability to pay. And th this is something I think that that I think we have to wrestle with as a society, who should be detained pretrial and who shouldn't, and what should be the criteria for doing so. Uh, you know, we obviously had recent state legislation that, that eliminated cash bail and was meant to institute sort of uh, risk assessment and algorithmic decision-making. Uh, and then ultimately that was rejected by, uh, by the voters in a, in a paired ballot initiative. But that issue hasn't gone away. And it's one that I, I believe there's gonna be more policy activity and need for people to study and think carefully about what we're doing. Yeah, I'd say cash bail seems like something that we're gonna continue to wrestle with. Um, you know, in the in the coming years in California, um, I did want to turn to um, some questions from viewers, and um, and the the first question is about uh, prison closure, um, and so uh, so with um, with the plan to close a prison, um, if that if 
if California starts closing uh, a number of, of facilities, um, state prisons, what provisions are in place or should be for rehabilitation um, for uh, housing, which we all know is a huge issue in California, um, and for reintegrating people um, you know, back into society? Mm -hmm. Well, my, my best guess would be that that closure would not precede um, appropriate policy to actually reduce the population because closure minus I'm sorry, was that my, are you still there? Oh, closure minus, uh, uh, you know, sentencing reform would just crowd people into, you know, a lower capacity system. Mm -hmm. So I, I think if, if, if we wanted to reduce, you know, our, 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 our prison system, it would have to be preceded by a, by a plan that was going to lead to a lower incarceration rate overall. Rather than just physically closing a place and then people are sort of squeezed into the, um, you know, into the remaining spots in the system. Well, I, I would think doing that would, would force a, a, an inhumane crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and for that reason, I, 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 I don't think that that would happen. That would be my guess. Okay, okay. Um, and then can you talk about issues around COVID and transferring people, which I know we had touched on very briefly, um, transferring people between the prisons. Um, uh, more than 200 people have died. Um, how could that have been avoided? Um, and I don't know, you know, how closely this is really in your, you know, in your direct purview, um, but do you know of any research into that so far or um, any, um, any examinations that you wanted to highlight? Uh, yeah, there, there's, well, there, you know, there, there are a bunch of different organizations that have been tracking COVID in prisons. The Marshall Project and, and a few others have, have quite good counters on the number of cases that among inmates and the number of cases among staff uh, documented, as well as, uh, as, as, well as deaths. Um, and th there have also been, uh, you know, a couple of academic researchers that have tried to see whether the case fatality rate is higher among uh, incarcerated people once you adjust for age, because the age distribution of the, of the incarcerated population is very different than the age distribution of the resident population. And it looks like, you know, given the different pre-existing conditions, that's, that's true. I think one of the most interesting things that I've read uh, is that there was an article in the British Medical Journal. The, the first author was somebody named Giovanni Malloy and what the, what the authors had done, and this, this came out kind of near maybe six, seven months out in the pandemic, is they modeled the reproduction ratio in a large county jail system uh, at, at various points of different sort of policy implementation. And, and basically what the reproduction ratio is, is this is you know, in this uh, sort of epidemiological model of disease transmission, that for every one person that becomes affected, how many people are they going to infect, right? Mm -hmm. And when it's above one, the you know the the disease will continue to spread. If it gets below zero, then the disease dies out. And and what we know is that things like you know being close to one another, not socially distancing, um, uh, and all of the the sort of aspects about congregate leave, living tends to increase the re reproduction ratio. And then of course COVID, for whatever reason, is a highly infectious disease, and now we have even more infectious variants. But what these authors had shown was that in this one uh, prison system, at the start of the pandemic, there was a reproduction ratio of around eight, that every person was, uh, um, in every infection was leading to eight more infections. 
And then once the, the jail system was able to reduce density uh, by, by limiting population, single selling people, um, using isolation for people who become infected, greater testing, uh, and so on and so forth, that they were able to reduce the reproduction ratio in the, in the jail quite a bit. And to, to some degree, it's, it's speculative because they're using a theoretical model to, to, to generate that number. But it, it does look like, despite the fact that this is a, you know, a, a really tough disease to battle, that there are things that can be done uh, in congregate settings to try to, to try to minimize the impact. Yeah, you know, I would say um, that that I was one of the reporters at the Marshall Project who started tracking when this um, when this first started, and it became clear that if it made it way its way into a prison, um, that there could just be really devastating consequences. Um, and spoke with people who were um, who were incarcerated um, or had loved ones who were incarcerated as they watched this um, you know virus spread throughout the the facilities where they were. We also got some photos um, that uh, through the prison law office of conditions in one of the first prisons in California where COVID hit um, of people in really tight quarters with um, very serious illnesses already. Um, and, uh, and it just, it looked like this is not, you know, this is gonna be terrible if COVID comes into one of these um, facilities. And then we watched as it spread, you know, and throughout, you know, I'm not even sure how many, you know, thousands of cases we're up to at this point, um, and people who have died. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything, you know, any lessons that you can see that we've learned um, if something like this would happen again. It it just seemed like uh, it was spreading quickly, but is it just that it takes so long to make policy changes in? Um, you know, in a corrections environment, it's um, it seems it's just been devastating to watch. Uh, well, uh, I, I I oftentimes I think about how you know universities responded, and then what correctional agencies were able to do. So universities responded by sending everybody home, and correctional agencies obviously uh, were unable to act with that degree of nimbleness. Right. And we had massive you know, outbreaks. And th there, there are some, you know, the, there, there are three uh, inspector general reports about the outbreak um, in, well, one specifically about the outbreak at San Quentin, and then also about, you know, steps that CDCR has taken to, to, mitigate, to mitigate COVID. And I do think that there are some lessons that, you know, very important lessons that we learned about some of our older facilities about uh, having proper air circulation, about things that we can do to try to mitigate, uh, for example, wastewater testing, contact tracing, mm -hmm. being a little bit more um, on top of things with regards to following protocol and, and very, very careful about movement uh, uh, among institutions. So there, there are lessons to be learned. Um, uh, that being said, it was a, a little, you know, I was reading one of those reports the other day and I read reference to uh, a, a similar sort of um, post-pandemic assessment that occurred in the 1940s with the Spanish flu in San Quentin. So, I, you know, the, because San Quentin spans both pandemics now, so we have an institution that does that. So I, I do think we need to think about the, the structure of our institutions and just some basics about um, you know, uh, how we can change things to ensure public health. 
Um, okay, so this question is about um, is about crime. Um, people who favor tough on crime policies may argue that policies like AB 109, which is the realignment policy, or Prop 47 could increase violent crime rates. Is there any evidence that violent crime rose after these laws implementation? Mm -hmm. So actually to the contrary, there, there isn't. So um, my, my colleagues at the Public Policy Institute of California and I have written uh, several papers on, on realignment Prop 47, as well as other researchers at UC Irvine and, and other people across the country. And our, our violent crime rate remains as, as low as it's been. And our most serious crime rate, uh, you know, murder, actually, you know, prior to 2006, 2006, 2007 was higher than the national average, and it's actually lower than the national average. Now, I think it would be a mistake to say that that's a result of these reforms, because there's other things happening in, in law enforcement and efforts that are going on at the same time. But uh, we, haven't, we haven't seen uh, uh, a rise, and it's been quite some time, right? So I, you know, uh, AB 109 went into effect 2011 and, and Prop uh, 47 went into effect 2014. And as of 2019, our, our violent crime rates are, are at historical lows, what they were in the 1960s. Right. Um, so, so there are a couple questions about prosecutors. Um, uh, how do you think the rise in progressive prosecutors and district attorneys like George Gascon, Larry Krasner, and Rachel Rollins will impact incarceration rates and justice reform? Well, I mean, what happens in prosecutors' offices is, uh, I think that there are many who would agree that it's it's kind of the tail that that wags the dog to some degree. I mean, of course, it it also interacts with. Mm -hmm with the penal code and the, the sentencing options available to different, uh, you know, in different states. But we do see that, um, you know, when, when a prosecutor's office decides that it's gonna go in one direction, it can lead to um, drastic change in turn, you know, in either direction, whether it is the number of, you know, high incarceration rate for a county or a low incarceration rate for a county. Mm -hmm. um, I think New York is an instructive example in the sense that that New York sort of took a punitive turn in the 1970s with the Rockefeller drug laws and and through the 1990s trying to reduce violence, and sometime in the in the sort of mid to late aughts, prosecutors in New York um, uh, uh, sort of stopped uh, sending as many people to prison and and were seeking alternatives, and drew the population down. So you know the 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 it's, it's just kind of a fascinating thing that we can have 58 counties uh, in California. We have 58 you know different different uh, district attorneys' offices operating under the same penal code, and you know we'll have everything from a thousand persons per hundred thousand prison in some counties to as low as 200 per hundred thousand in other counties, and part of that might be explained by crime or demographics. But a lot of it is is simply differences in implementation that's being pursued by the counties, and so so who is elected uh, definitely probably is indicative of of where what's going to happen in the next couple of years. Yeah, it sounds like you you know you're saying that they do make you know it does make a difference who um, who that district attorney is. Um, all right, uh, so another question. This is about. Um, 
is about phrasing and terminology. Um, many people and organizations are moving away from the phrase criminal justice system. Do you think there's a good substitute for that phrase? Uh, well, so it, I guess I, I sort of refer to it because it's what I'm used to saying and writing over and over again. And and there there certainly is, I think, um, an effort to be more people centered and to be less. Uh, um, um, I don't know what the correct term would be, but but less building uh, sort of value judgments into the labels that we use, right? So. Um, <laughs> And I think that that what I've been reading just in the last few months is people are now making increasing references to the criminal legal system rather than the criminal justice system. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess I haven't made that switch probably out of habit, but I, I have seen that as a sort of definite linguistic trend. All right. Um, and then this goes back to the, um, the discussion about people being released from prison um, and then not being sent for certain low-level crimes. Um, could you discuss alternatives to prison for these types of low-level crimes? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, there are, there are a number of alternatives. Many counties, uh, many of counties will, will, will do these. And sometimes they're used for, for felony offenses too, offenses that are not so low-level. So um, many counties have specialty courts like uh, drug court, behavioral health court that are, you know, to some degree, uh, um, you know, they're still coercive in the sense that somebody is under the, the purview of the criminal justice system, but they're also meant to be therapeutic and to try to address the needs of people that are in the system with an eye on, uh, on, on fixing what is, what is causing the, the frequent interactions with people. There's also veteran court. Um, some places have courts that are devoted to traditional age youth from 18 to 25 with an idea that that for whatever reason is a high uh, offending age range. Um, there are many localities that uh, across the country, and then also in California, they're experimenting with restorative justice programs, oftentimes in a youth context. And, you know, restorative justice oftentimes involves um, the person who's been charged with the offense, basically admitting what happened, and then meeting in a collaborative uh, um, sort of conference with uh, the person who is the victim of the offense. And it's, a, it's an attempt to, to see what the impact is and then try to restore and make amends, which could be anything from paying restitution to, um, you know, and being involved in community services, writing apology letters, doing things to try to have someone internalize the, the consequences of their action. That's another, another, and there's research on this that suggests that it could be promising, it's still, you know, developing. And in some countries it's used quite extensively. Uh, you know, and then, Frankly, there's there's um, uh, other situations for really really low level things. Like I was on a on a in a conference not too long ago, and there's um, uh, a police chief from from a large county in Georgia who uh, was suggesting when they stop somebody for a, for a um, uh, an equipment violation, rather than giving them a ticket, they give them a coupon. Right and say you know here's a place where you can go get your car fixed and it'll be cheap and to try to to try to come up with alternative ways that then don't lead to a failure to appear and a warrant and all of the fines and just kind of the the ways that people can get into into trouble if they're not staying on top of you know legal proceedings. Mm -hmm. oh, that's an interesting that's an interesting idea. Um, so I think we just have time for one more question, um, and um, that is. Um, do you have any um, 
sort of definitive kind of answer about the title um, that, um, you know, that we pose today, has California ended mass incarceration? Uh, well, I think we can objectively say no. <laughs> and just to read, just, just by, by the numbers, right? So we peaked at about 488 per 100,000, right? We're currently at about 310 per 100,000 if we, if we think right before COVID numbers. It's lower now, but I, I, my guess is it's probably temporarily so. And in 1980, we were at 100 per 100,000, right? So we're definitely lower than we were. We were at the national average for many years. Um, you know, we were the 15th highest ranked state or the 18th highest ranked state. Now we're 32nd. Uh, and, you know, the reduction in California is bringing down the national incarceration rate because we're a big state, quite naturally. Uh, but there are other states that are lower than us, right? So New York is 239 per 100,000, Washington's 256, Massachusetts 146. So, you know, we've, we've come along, we've, we've, we've reduced it quite a bit. We're about where we were at 1990, but we're still three times where we were in 19. We're, we're you know, we're not a European country. Uh, and so depending on how we define mass incarceration, we still have a lot of people incarcerated in the state. All right, well, we have to close here. Um, so thank you again so much um, for your insights. It's been, um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about all of this today. And to everybody who's watching, thanks for joining and for your great questions. Um, you can visit Zocalo's website for a summary of the conversation, other articles related to some of the issues that we've talked about today and to find out about upcoming events. And thanks very much to the California Wellness Association and UC Center Sacramento for co-presenting this conversation. Thanks and have a great afternoon. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Abby.